Hey folks, in case you missed it, the single barrels have started rolling in. Both barrels of the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Barrel Proof Rye are available through Hudson Wine Market, with direct links in my social media pages and Instagram bio. These also went out to patrons with a special discount code. These barrels have been going so quickly that honestly, I don't even know if they're going to be any left by the time this is posted. So if they are available and you want them, trust me, don't wait because someone else is going to grab them first. Next up is the Barrel Rye finished in Armagnac casks. This is going live on October 2nd. This incredible pick was done in partnership with the guys at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. The Timbip guys are great friends, and I'm thrilled to have this barrel come into the shop. On October 2nd, Patreon members of both podcasts will have first dibs with free shipping for Patreon supporters. No limits, no minimums, free shipping for Patreon supporters. So up your Patreon pledge now if you want to grab them before everyone else and get that free shipping code. Just want to take a quick second. Thank you so much. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to all the supporters, especially my friends on Patreon. You've put a ton of investment into the pod and the site through the years. And as these single barrels start rolling out and additional products start rolling out, I'll keep providing as many perks as possible to those who have supported me along the way and continue to join. If you're not a patron, if I was on the outside, sounds like now's the time to join. All right, enough updates. Now on to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going clear across the country over to Clear Creek. This distillery, uh, which I have to ask a little bit more about to get the particulars on. Tonight, we've got on Caitlin Bartome from Clear Creek to talk about the brands, the distilleries, the history of this really pioneering distillery for single malt and other reasons. So with that, Caitlin, welcome on. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So uh, just to start off, because I think I need some clarification on this, let alone the listeners. So um, let's just start with exploring the relationship between Hood River, Clear Creek, and McCarthy's. And McCarthy's is probably the name that people have heard the most in at least the single malt world. In the single malt malt world, absolutely. Yeah, that would probably be... um, uh, I think the best way in order to answer that question is kind of start in the middle and then work my way out to the edges. It's a little bit okay. of a convoluted story, but I, I'll, I'll try to make sure that I'm answering all of it all together. Um, the best way to start is to start talking about where Clear Creek, Clear Creek Distillery started. Uh, we were founded in 1985 in Portland, Oregon by a man named Steve McCarthy. He had traveled around the world with a company that he owned uh, that sold sporting goods and had fallen in love with all of the European brandies along the way. And when he came back and sold his company for what he called a sack full of money, Mm -hmm. uh, he was in his early 40s and was really not sure um, what the next step was going to be. And uh, a branch of his family tree, uh, the, the McCarthy's, they were growing pears here in the Hood River Valley. And uh, as the story goes, they were having a hard time getting a good price for their pears, uh, the decline of the fruit cocktail and all. And uh, he was like, you know, I love this pear brandy, the Williams pear brandy uh, from Europe. Why don't I become a distiller and make it here? Because nobody seems to be making it here. And that's kind of a crying shame. So 
he bought a couple stills. He rang up Jorg Rupf at St. George, uh, who had started St. George a couple years prior, and said, hey, what if I paid you $85,000 to train me how to use these stills and to make hair brandy? And uh, Jorg, I think, maybe questioned the idea of training his direct competitor. But at the end of the day, uh, small businesses need cash. And so he took him up on the offer and trained Steve on how to make pear brandy on his new German pot sales in about two weeks. And the rest is essentially history. Steve added a number of different fruit brandies fairly early on, apple brandies, blue plum brandy, uh, cherry brandy, also known as Kirschwasser. Uh, to a lot of people that do any cooking or baking, they might have come across that name more frequently than they would have come across cherry brandy. And then it wasn't until a trip in the early 90s with his wife, Lucinda Parker, on uh, uh, they were going to go hiking in Ireland. And oh darn, it was pouring down rain. And so I guess we're not going to go hiking. I guess we'll just avail ourselves to our friend's vast single malt collection, which was mostly Scottish single malts. And that was the trip where he really fell in love with single malts and the category and he was like you know well i have this little distillery in oregon and well barley grows in oregon and certainly there's peat in oregon wouldn't it be dope which is definitely my word and not his word wouldn't it be dope if i came back to oregon after this trip and started making a, a single malt in my little distillery and it was towards the um you know, the, the escalation of the craft beer boom in Portland, uh, which was certainly one of the epicenters for that. So there was a few small craft malt houses that were in the area at the time. He reached out to them and said, hey, I've got this great idea. We're going to get Oregon peat. We're going to get Oregon barley. We're going to peat smoke it. Or really, you're going to peat smoke it. And then you're going to give it to me and we'll turn it into a whiskey and we'll have this amazing Oregon single malt. And the answer from all of the small craft malt houses at the time was no, because once you get peat reek into those systems, it's almost impossible to remove it. And every craft beer that came out of the Portland area and the greater Portland area would have been a smoky peaty lager or what have you. So the answer was no at the time, which left the only uh, way for him to make his American single malts, which were really single malt at the time was how he was phrasing it. Um, was to import that barley from Scotland, which is what we still do today. Uh, all these 20, I don't know, what, 25 years later since the, the first McCarthy's was released in 1998, was first distilled in 1995. Uh, he, he, just like making the pear brandy, decided to make a single malt because he could. And certainly the fact that it's become this huge movement that you know, we have the American Single Malt Commission with over 100 members. There's over 250 distilleries across the United States that are making American single malt. Uh, we're on the precipice of having the standard of identity, hopefully ratified by the TTB, um, and a standard of identity that was um, created and pushed by all of this beautiful lattice work of small producers across the country. To be and and to be as inclusive as possible at that, so it wasn't too difficult, too expensive, too arduous to get into the category. So that covers Clear Creek and McCarthy's. 
In 2014, Steve was looking to retire. He was in his early 70s at this point, having been a spirits pioneer for the latter half of his long and illustrious career. And he wanted to find another small local company that would honor not only the tradition of the spirits that he was making and how he was making them by working with local producers, working with local companies, making sure that everything was, is really farm to glass, orchard to glass, but also taking care of his employees. Um, there was 10 of us at the time at, at Clear Creek when he was getting ready to sell. And that's, a, you know, a big company for a small company, but still a very small company with only 10 employees. But it was really important to him that he, excuse me, um, it was really important to him that he provided us with health care. And so making sure that not only the authenticity of the liquids we were producing, but also all the authenticity of how we did business carried through all the way to the end. And so he actually sought out Hood River Distillers. Um, little did he know at the time, Hood River Distillers, uh, you know, fresh with success from Pendleton Whiskey, uh, them having their own long history starting all the way back in 1934. They actually have the first ever uh, DSP number for Oregon, DSP OR01. They were looking to return to their roots, which in 1934 was making pear and apple brandies from the fruit of the Hood River Valley. So he came knocking on their door. Hey, um, I'm looking to retire. You guys are this wonderful, still family owned oldest distillery in, in Oregon, and you take really good care of your employees, would you like to buy Clear Creek Distillery and continue, continue the brand? And from how the story has been recounted to me, uh, essentially they had a check in their hand to buy their first still and to start looking at properties to start their own distillery. And they were like, just tore it up, just ripped it up and said, you know what? Buying Clear Creek sounds like a way better option. Buying a brand that's well-established, 30 years old, <laughs> comes with all the equipment that we need and the people to run it and, and the knowledge that they have. Absolutely. 10 out of 10. Great idea. So in February of 2014, Hood River Distillers purchased Clear Creek Distillery. And then in 2018, we were moved from Portland out here to the Hood River Valley in large part to be closer to the pears, but also to install the beautiful Carl vodka still that's in the next room that is that gentle humming you hear in the background of the record as it ticks away. Honestly, I can't so hear it. That's pretty good. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the like I said, you kind of have to start in the middle with the history of how Clear Creek started and why Clear Creek started, and then kind of reach out to the edges with why why HRD, why Hood River. Um, and how we all fit together. So McCarthy's now, um, I, I like to explain Hood River Distillers and how we all work and all the brands, how we work together uh, by using the solar system uh, because we all, we all have a fairly keen idea of how that all works. So Hood River Distillers is the sun. They're the bright, shiny light that powers everything. The, I have claimed Saturn for Clear Creek Distillery because let's be honest, it's the dopest planet. Uh, and Saturn also has rings, right? Uh, McCarthy's has definitely always been made by Clear Creek. It's still made by Clear Creek staff members at the distillery that would be labeled Clear Creek Distillery. But in large part, as it grows, uh, as Clear Creek grows and as Hood River Distillers grows, it's largely treated um, more like an independent brand. So it kind of lives its own separate life and has its own 
um, separate creative sandbox, if you will. So I describe the rings of Saturn as McCarthy, still really important to the Clear Creek story, still even more important to me personally and anybody that makes it, that it is a part of the Clear Creek brand story, but definitely just a touch separate. And then Saturn has all these wonderful moons. Uh, Clear Creek Distillery also produces a few independent brands for the larger company as well, like uh, Old Delicious Double Bourbon Barreled Apple Brandy, the Timberline Vodka, which is made from grain and 14 different varieties of Pacific Northwest Apple, and then a rectified vodka. And oh, wait, and the Trails End Line. See, there's so many things that we make out of this facility. I actually have a hard time remembering all of them. It is 33 in total liquids that come out of this facility, with uh, 26 of them being Clear Creek and McCarthy's. And Trails End is the Kentucky Kentucky bourbon line that we, we bring the, the barrels from Kentucky. And then once they're of age, we harvest and finish them uh, with Pacific Northwest culinary history kind of touches. So there's there's a couple that are finished with Oregon oak and we've got an apple finish and probably not necessarily jumping the gun too much to tell you that we will have a small amount of a porter barrel finished uh, to tie into our, our craft brewing roots of that trails in coming out this fall. That'll be fun. I'm, I definitely have questions about the uh, trails end down the line. Sure. But uh, ooh, porter finish, that could be, uh, I'll admit this. So we're recording this um, literally day after I got back from the Kentucky bourbon fest. So uh I seem to be the only one who made it through without like destroying their liver or becoming dehydrated. But, I was going to say, you uh, look, your, your face is bright and you look right. I know. I'm surprised. Uh, <laughs> some people were really struggling. I'm sorry. They were really struggling. But sure. um, uh, I mean, I was at right, Tales of the Cocktail this week. I imagine that uh, Friday, yeah. Saturday, people at Tales of the Cocktail is probably about the same as the last day of, uh, of the Bourbon Fest. So pretty much. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Well, uh, just before I left for the fest, this is about a week ago now, uh, the last thing I tried before leaving was the Bardstown Bourbon Company collaboration series with the Goose Island Stout. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll admit, I'm not much of a beer guy. I usually go towards the IPAs, but, uh, and I don't know, I don't even know enough to really go into like the difference between Stout and a Porter, but. Um, the, the internet. The- the internet's yeah. not really sure either. Like there's, yeah. there's depending on depending on the beer nerd you ask, there's definitive differences between a a, a porter and a stout. But uh... <laughs> right, good to know. So, um, hearing that you're gonna have the uh, the porter finished, uh, I mean, I'm I'm curious to taste it just because I actually kind of like the Bardstown Bourbon one. I haven't liked most beer finishes, uh, but occasionally one gets through and I'm like, ooh, that is pretty good. So, I'll be on the lookout for that for sure when it comes out um so yeah so uh, so jumping way back in time mm-hmm. what uh just to jump to that you know the founding of, of hood river 1934 it's like mm-hmm. so it the first one in oregon dsp or one um i don't remember offhand what the first distillery after prohibition was but i mean clearly it was very close Yes. To being, it was I one don't, of the I don't either. I don't, I don't know yeah. either. I can tell you a little bit about the story of its founding, but uh, I don't know in order uh, post prohibition where Hood River Distiller stands. Yeah. I mean, you, you beat Kentucky because Kentucky was the first one was uh, Heaven Hill and that was 35. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Um, but I, I'm curious what the, the before prohibition was there a big distilling presence in, in Oregon or in that area <laughs> in particular? 
Yeah, actually, it's uh, it's a great question. Um, there is a really wonderful book, and I unfortunately don't remember the name of the man who wrote it, but it's I think it's called Oregon Distilled, and he did a wonderful history about the distilling culture and the and distilleries as far as he could find a record of uh, through various libraries and uh, county records and going back and looking at um, like shipping and receiving docks, all kinds of stuff. He did some really wonderful research. Uh, certainly clear or not clear Creek, Oregon has a, a really interesting and rich distilling history pre-prohibition. Uh, it's one of the few states, maybe the only state, uh, that has had a prohibition that had a, a prohibition before the one that we all went through. And it was specifically just to keep one guy from making alcohol. Uh, it was in the Portland area. He was actually, if memory serves, the sheriff of the, the what's now the Portland metropolitan area at the time. And he was making this awful stuff called Blue Ruin. And it was made from, it was, it's, it's the fact that there was any alcohol is really surprising, but it was made from unmalted wheat and it was called Blue Ruin. Re reasonably as a distiller, we assume that it's called Blue Ruin because when you go really super deep into tails and you get that kind of milky quality, that louching quality to the alcohol, it kind of looks blue. And considering mm -hmm. he was making it from unmalted wheat, I'm going to guess it was not well distilled and really horrific. Specifically, it, it, it was making people sick and it was making um, it was making the very tenuous situation between the colonists and settlers as and the native population. And they were like, hey, we need to be working with these people. We're in their ter territory. Um, quit selling them poison. And he was like, nah, I'm still making money selling this poison. <laughs> so they actually, <laughs> the Oregon sheriff, actually, so. <laughs> yeah, he's the sheriff. So Oregon enacted a, an early prohibition just to keep this guy from making alcohol. Uh, and then when he died, they rescinded it. <laughs> um, we also like love to tell a story about a man named Gorham Goodell. When you talk about uh, Oregon's early distilling history, we like to coin him as the patron saint of distillery disasters. Joseph, my predecessor, Joseph O'Sullivan, who's now over at um, Minden Mills in Nevada, but my predecessor, Joseph O'Sullivan, and I would always joke about making some like necklaces. I have a, a oh my gosh, I can't remember what saint he is. He's the patron saint of travelers. A friend got me before. Oh, uh, Christopher. Yeah. So I have a St. Christopher on why, my necklace. Why do uh, I know necklace. that? Why do I know? <laughs> I shouldn't know that, but I do. Okay. I know. It's, do you have sound effects on your podcast? You can put a little Jeopardy sound effect in there. You win. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so much like I have a St. Christopher on my necklace, uh, uh, for, for just in case I travel, we always joked about maybe making some sort of pendant or t-shirt or wristband, or I don't know, for Gorham Goodell, the painter state of distillery disasters. Cause certainly we've all seen or been a part of a distillery disaster or two over our careers. Uh, but he takes the cake. He wins. He wins the worst thing to ever happen to a distillery. Um, he started... Uh, let's see, in the late 1800s in present-day Troutdale, which is just on the outside of, uh, or just on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. And he had, like, I think it was like 10, 000, over 10,000 proof gallons of, of whiskey aging, fairly large facility. 
and what was suspected as early pre or early prohibitionists uh, burned it down, burned it to the ground. And he was like, well, all right. So the Portland area is getting a little hot, literally for mm -hmm. distillers. Maybe I'll move this distilling operation a little further east where it's a little bit more amenable, amenable to what I'm trying to do here. Cool. So he moves uh, all the way out to Banks, Oregon, which is close to current day Biggs Junction or no Rufus. Anyways, doesn't really matter. There are two towns that I will, I would bet money that none of your listeners have ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyways, he moved out to Banks, Oregon and he started his distillery right around, uh, I want to say it was the winter of like 1898, 1899. There was a massive flood and the Columbia River left its banks and actually left its banks to the extent that it actually managed to lift the entire distillery up off of its foundation and send it down the river. Now the, oh, yeah, it was Rufus because that's the part of the story. Anyways, so there was a ferryman uh, down the river closer to where Biggs is now. And he saw the distillery get lifted up off of its foundations, including all 11 of its distillers. Its staff were still in the building. So he got his ferry fired up in these rushing floodwaters, managed to make it out to the distillery and save all of the personnel. Hooray! Uh, but none of the barrels. <laughs> <laughs> and as legend goes, apparently at some point further downriver, uh, one of the uh, one of the groups of natives further down the river managed to actually wrestle one to the, to the edge of the river and they had it. And I think he tried to go and get it and then was like, you know what? It is yours. It's absolutely yours. You managed to save this out of the river. And that was, that was quite the athletic attempt to get a full barrel of whiskey out of a, out of a rushing flooding river. So he left it be and then was like, all right, one more time. I'm going to do this. This distillery is going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. So this time he put his thinking cap on though. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to be going through all of this grain in order to make my whiskey. What if I got a bunch of cows and pigs and then I could feed them the spent grain. And then I could also be selling people all these cows and pigs. And then I'd have two revenue streams and I'd be taking care of my waste stream. Aren't I an absolute genius? Unfortunately, he didn't see a, a, an international drought on the horizon. So Australia was going through, went through an amazing drought and that meant the local grain growers were able to sell all of their grain on the international market for much more than they could get on the local market. So the price skyrocketed and he was priced out of grain to make whiskey. And what made it even worse was that not only could he not make any whiskey, but now he had all these cows and pigs to feed on top of it so instead of having two revenue streams he uh yeah he just he just had a lot of money going out the door so he eventually closed that distillery uh he tried really hard to get a couple small towns in the area he was like hey if you give me fifteen thousand dollars i'll start up this distillery in your small town won't it be great all the jobs and by that time there was already rumors and whispers and whatnots of not wanting alcohol around and early pre-prohibition um conversation so uh nobody took him up on that offer and he eventually moved on to other exploits other than distilling but uh poor gorham goodell he really went through it and he tried his hardest I just imagine him being like i'm gonna try one more time and then like on paper 
that plan actually sounded like it could work. I mean, the poor guy, how, who sees a drought like in, in the, in the, you know, early 1900s, yeah. who was he to, how was he to know that there was going to be a massive drought in Australia that would spike the grain price? Like what? Yeah. I don't think they knew about El Nino back then. So no, I, yeah, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it is kind of fun to think about though. So I'm, I'm, just from what I know of, of movements of people and, and crops and such across the country, I'm guessing many of the distillers who would have been there at the time were probably of like Scotch Irish descent or um, yeah, I'd probably say Scotch Irish descent because they mainly stayed North as they went West. And um, so you, that's how you get these brandies in particular, the whiskey, if there's grain, too. I am a terrible Oregonian. I couldn't, I can't, I, I can't confirm or deny the, uh, the makeup of the population that ended up being colonists here. So, uh, um, jumping, I guess, back to not exactly the common, common time. No, current time. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, I, t- I didn't get dehydrated and I was good all weekend and my words are still all over the place. Hey, that's uh, good. And I'm, so, not, I'm not alone. <laughs> um, so uh, jumping to when this is partially when um, when Clear Creek was created and also when McCarthy's came out, mm-hmm. um, I heard uh, I heard Joe mention on another podcast, it was a recent episode of I Was Told There Would Be Whiskey, that no one at the time, and especially not Steve, like they didn't care too much about the whole for being the quote-unquote first or one of the first american single malts no so i wanted to dig a little bit more into that and um you know the first question i had was you mentioned that saint george was already there Mm -hmm. um i think they were the first yeah clear creek distillery uh was the third craft distillery in the united states so uh, uh, jermaine raban and saint george and then clear creek all all in the west on the west coast all making brandy (laughs) right and jermaine raban is in um nevada is it no california california okay california so yeah all west coast um so the first question i have just jumping into that is when when steve decided to get into like i'm gonna make a single malt even if he wasn't calling it american it was i'm gonna make a single malt i'm gonna import the barley do whatever i have to do to do this um was there do you know if he had a market identified? Like, did he know that there were people who wanted to buy the spirit that he was going to be creating? Um, I mean, you know, kind of like I, I said before, Clear Creek and Steve, you know, he he really just made what he wanted to make because he thought it was cool. That's pretty much what it is. He fell in love with single malts and was like, well, people like single malt, so I'm going to make one. Because I also like single malt, and his favorite style was an Isla style smoky PD single malt. So that's what he set out to do. And he loved, you know, he loved Williams pear brandy. And wouldn't you know it, the Williams pear and the Bartlett pear are his same exact pear, which is another hilarious oh. uh, bit of weird history that I know. Um, that Bartlett pear history is a wild ride. Um, <laughs> but that uh, is a sentence you do not hear every day. The Bartlett pear story <laughs> is a wild ride. It totally is. Okay, maybe not the wildest ride. I wouldn't maybe spell wild with a with a Y. Maybe it's a lowercase 
lowercase wild ride. To me, it is because it, it went through several different name changes. We don't really know where it's from. Everybody just like every time they discovered it was quote discovered, they would just rename it. <laughs> they just kept rediscovering the same pair over and over yeah, again. <laughs> specifically. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, that's how it became the Bartlett pair instead of the Williams pair. The, the Bartlett and Williams pair are the last two names that it, that it ha had has. And uh, they the, the Williams pair came over, was planted on some property on the East Coast. The property was sold. The guy that bought it was like, I've never seen this pair before ever. I'm going to name it after me. It's the Bartlett pair. <laughs> it sounds so American. I don't know why. It sounds yeah, so American. And then, well, I mean, I would, love to, I, would love to, I would love to agree with you. And it's not entirely not un-American. However, I will say that that was technically its fourth name change over like, 500 years so certainly it's, it's i think it's just closer to say that it's a very human thing it's a human thing to do fair, fair <laughs> enough. so uh with i know it's like we said steve didn't really care about the whole first thing but there is an element to being one of the earliest you know the third craft distillery the uh, several different superlatives that you can put on the distillery and the product mm -hmm. um since steve's retirement has there been any uh, effort to kind of exploit that more or any desire to to use that? Um, not really. You know, the when it was discovered with the American Single Malt Commission that Clear Creek actually was the first, um, Joseph and I did, didn't really, we weren't super keen on that idea just because it just feels weird to be the first, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's weird. We don't usually uh, call it out a whole lot personally. Uh, it wasn't important to us personally to call it out. McCarthy's is just really good. It's still definitely a huge passion. Um, the marketing team was like, hey, it's really cool that we're the first. We should maybe like put that on the label. So like I said, now that McCarthy's is largely being treated at its, as its own independent brand, they removed the Clear Creek Distillery on the label and added the first American single malt onto the label a, a handful of years ago. Um, certainly, you know, it's cool being the first, but I have this rich vein of like ridiculous amount of, of being humble. And I don't, I just, ugh, it just bothers me <laughs> to just say that I'm the first, especially like there are so many beautiful American single malts and it doesn't really matter who was the first, what matters. And, and, and realistically, how many, I would be interested in knowing of all the early American single malts, how many of them actually knew that McCarthy's existed and how many of them were just like, well, oh, this would be really cool to make this a hundred percent malt whiskey. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be neat? <laughs> so somebody was always going to be the first. We happened to trip over ourselves and be the first. Um, What's more important is that the category exists and the category is growing and the category is, is growing with enthusiasm from both the people that taste and consume it and the people that want to make it. So planting a flag in first doesn't really matter. And you also mentioned too that the we're hoping, fingers and toes crossed, that we're going to get the standards of identity. Yes. So you know what I mean? It's now been almost a year since the public comment period has ended. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
you know, I know we were hoping for it a couple months after. Then we were like, oh, maybe in the summer. Oh, maybe in the it, fall. So it's definitely one of those yeah. things where every night when I tuck my little distiller head and under my little duvet and I say, oh, what a busy day that was. We'll see how busy tomorrow is. I'm one, and then I go, I wonder if tomorrow's going to be the day. I wonder if tomorrow's <laughs> the day. <laughs> and then I go to sleep having snoozy little distiller dreams about a day when we have a standard of identity for American single malt. And from what you've said and what I know about, about the McCarthy specifically, you were always going to fit into the proposed regulations. Like there weren't, you didn't have issues of you were doing 80% malted barley and 20% some other grain or things like that. Um, nope. It's always been made with hundred percent malted barley. We age in both new and used cooperage. Uh, we've always distilled below 160. We're, we're distilling actually one of the interesting things about the McCarthy's it's there. It's distilled on our hybrid pot stills. It's the same stills that make all of our beautiful fruit brandies, which is not necessarily the most common kind of still to make an American single malt on, I think German brandy stills. Um, and it's a single pass distillation as well. So that lends to the fact that it's a, a heavy, heavier spirit. There's a lot of oils. There's a lot of aromas and flavors that carry over because it's it's distilled only the once. Clear Creek is, is, is and McCarthy's is always going to be uh, fitting in with the standard of identity. Certainly in, in uh, the standard that's been recommended by the American Single Malt Commission. And we know that uh, obviously the crew up at, at Westland and then a couple of other places too, but especially Steve Hawley, like really took the reins and because he was president of the, the uh, single yeah. mall commission. So really took the reins and leading this, but um, to what extent was, you know, your operation involved in crafting those things or, or taking part or was more just you fit, you were supported and you wanted it to happen. So we were not at the Clear Creek was not a representative member at the first ever American Single Malt Commission meeting, which I believe happened in Chicago. Um, I don't remember in the back room. It was in the back yeah. room of a Benny's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe that, yeah, there was there was the seven founding members of the American Single Malt Commission were at that one. Um, Steve really had um, a very quiet approach to how we existed within uh, the distilling community and really any community. Clear Creek really kind of just stuck to itself and churned out the things that we were passionate about. And we spent all of our time and effort at tasting events and talking and educating people across the country about what brandy is, about what our Oregon single malt was about. Uh, and not really participating a whole lot in the industry community at large. And so it wasn't something that was high on his radar of things to worry about at the time. Um, since then, you know, we are absolutely a member of the of the commission now. Um, I am only recently in this more leadership role. So you would have to ask Joseph uh, as far as, how nitty gritty he has gotten, I can tell you because I know Joseph really well. And I have come to know Steve Hawley through Joseph and all of the work that they've done together. I can say that Joseph has absolutely uh, done everything that he can to work on all of these standards. But realistically, all the work was essentially done uh, at that first meeting. And so it was essentially just bringing other people on and continuing to explain why the why the standards of, of identity that were were decided on 
really make the most sense for all of the producers across the country. Because like I said, it's meant to be as inclusive as possible. We want to be able to taste and smell the rich tapestry of what American single malt means to every American single malt distiller across the country. And if you create a standard of identity that is so nitpicky and so specific, then you're going to have an American single malt that tastes like every other American single malt. And like, that's boring. I want to be able to, I, I love, I used to say I want to be able to taste what an American single malt from New Orleans tastes like, but I, there is one. It's called, his name is uh, uh, Jeb. He makes a uh, single malt at Atelier V and I have a bottle of it. It's fantastic. Uh, just like the notch from triple eight uh, on the East coast. It's beautiful. Uh, you know, courage and conviction and Del Bach and, Stranahan's, McCarthy's, Westland, Westward, all, I mean, there is a, over 100 members of American Single Malt Commission, over 250 producers of American Single Malt. I want to taste them all, and I want to celebrate them all, and I want to celebrate their differences. And those differences are going to be celebrated within the standard of identity because uh, it's, it's open to that creativity. And it's largely been built by the small producers as well. So it wasn't meant to be exclusive. It was meant to be inclusive. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's Nose is both a nod to Arden Market's rugged Western Peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula and as an homage to the long mentorship they've received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. So with that, you mentioned, it's a good transition point that you mentioned you're more recently in this leadership role. And <laughs> I, of course, this is where you are now. So um, what is your current title, but also What's your story? How did you, I, and I usually, I should preface, I don't usually ask the, how did you get into this question? Because it's usually dealt with elsewhere, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So what's your current title and how'd you get here? <laughs> so uh, I'm the current head distiller for Clear Creek Distillery. Uh, distiller alone at the moment, but uh, uh, young master Garrett Trotter will be returning to the distillery shortly. He uh, went off and had a beautiful brand new baby boy with his wife, Loretto, in July. So they've been enjoying some time forming a family over the last couple months. And then we have a new distiller that will be starting hopefully the second week of October. Um, how did I get into this? Do you want the short version or the long version? <laughs> up, up to you. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll shoot for medium. Um, I, like I said earlier, I grew up, uh, on a wheat ranch in Eastern Oregon 
I say ranch. They got rid of the cows when I was three. Really, it was a wheat farm, but we always called it the ranch. So old habits. Uh, and my uh, my dad started a winery when I was in middle school. So I started working for my dad when I was like seven or eight years old, helping him out in the shop, working on stuff. He loved it because I had little tiny nimble fingers and I could sneak into all kinds of cracks and crevices and equipment that he that he wasn't able to anymore. So I was I was his head flashlight holder and, and right hand kid starting at a very early, early age. I was a driving tractor by 12 and at 13, I was the only combine driver. So I was 13 years old running a piece of equipment that was literally my family's livelihood. Uh, if it went down or caught fire, that's just it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and I was all by myself. There was the next closest human being was probably also in a combine and probably about like 15 miles away or so. And then we were very fortunate to have a lot of really wonderful friends that would chip in and drive wheat truck for me uh, when we get to go through the harvest season. So definitely grew up uh, working crazy hard in a, in a, in essentially a male dominated field, <laughs> even though it was just my dad and his friends. And then, like, yeah, he started a winery when I was in middle school. So uh, I, I think I've messaged, messaged uh, Murphy Quint over at Cedar Ridge commiserating about, like, wine kids, grown, grown up being a wine kid where, you know, you'd get in line for lunch and the teachers would be like, hey, we told you to wash your hands. And I'd be like, they are clean. My dad had me mashing grapes this weekend and they're stained. I promise I washed them. Murphy's, Murphy's been through that as well. We had kind of a shared moment there. See, he skipped over that story when he came on the podcast. So I'm going to have to (laughs) ask him about that. Yeah. It's the little things that you get in the Instagram, Instagram conversations between distillers. Right. Yeah. Um, and I really caught the fermentation bug. You know, I, I was helping in the vineyard. I was helping in the winery. My folks had me, interestingly enough, I couldn't, I couldn't pour tastes behind the the quote bar in the tasting room that was right next to the house and the family farm because it was behind a bar and I was underage, but they could load me up with a pickup full of wine and send me off to Portland to do in-store tastings at Fred Meyers because that wasn't behind a bar. So I was doing a lot of the uh, distance wine tasting events as well uh, as a high school student. Which is crazy. I, I was actually just recently kind of totting up all the years that I've been doing um, in-person tasting events for. And it's like I've been I've been tasting the community at large on on alcohols that I've made for 20 years, which is just gross to think about. Um, I've seen it all. I've, I haven't done it all, but I've definitely heard all, all of it, I think, at this point in time. Um, and then I. Uh, my parents told me that they didn't care what I went to college for. I just had to go to college. And I was very fortunate in that Oregon State University in, in, down in Corvallis has a really wonderful food science program with a fermentation option. So I started out thinking that I was going to be a winemaker because wouldn't that be cool? And a really wonderful man named Steve Smith, who was in charge of making sure all of us new kids understood what we were undertaking. He was like, okay, well, if you're going to be v viticulture and enology, you realize you're probably working in California, right? And I was like, well, I'm not, gosh, I'm 18 years old. I'm not sure I'm full send on California yet. I Maybe I want to work somewhere else. So 
I switched to, to fermentation and uh, I took an intro to beer, wine and spirits class and was shocked at how little I knew about spirits. I essentially knew nothing about how spirits were made, where they came from. And at the time, it was really difficult to find information on, how, you know, distilling information that, you know, not necessarily the early days of the internet. I'm not that old, but still kind of the early days of the internet, considering where we are now, right? It was pre-smartphone, at least. And so finding information on distilling was increasingly difficult. So I was like, well, okay, that means the only option I have in order to learn more is to just get a job at a distillery. Okay, cool. So my last, goodness, I've got all the fun sounds. My last... Uh, term at Oregon State, I sent a resume to every distillery in the Pacific Northwest, which at the time was 12, 12 distilleries. That was it. Um, and Clear Creek never told me to stop calling back. So I would, I would call on Friday and be like, hey, I just want to make sure you got my resume. And Steve would answer the phone and be like, yeah, yeah, I have it right here. And then I'd call again and be like, hey, I haven't heard from you. Just wanted to make sure if you had any questions, you knew uh, my contact information. And they'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, we have it here, but Steve's on vacation. Call back in another couple weeks. So I'd put it in my little notebook, call back two weeks. I'd call again. And uh, they were like, hey, yeah, actually, we lost your resume. Could you resend it? I was like, of, co of course I can resend it. I'm happy to resend it. And um, they finally asked me for an interview. And they hired me the day after my last final at Oregon State. So I hadn't even actually technically graduated. It was just the day after my last exam uh, when I when I accepted an offer to work at Clear Creek. And now 13 oh. years later, uh, I'm I'm in charge of it all, I guess. And I think that was a pretty good medium. I got to say that was that was. <laughs> It's a I quick, mean, uh, let's see, I was 22 when I was hired. Yeah, it was a real fast 22-year history of who the heck is Caitlin Bartlemain? Why should I listen to her about American single malt and, and fruit brandies in the Pacific Northwest? Well, so in, not, not to date you, of course, but that means how long have you been working with uh, Clear Creek? 13 years. 13 years, okay. So yeah. So actually pretty, yeah, so 13 years. So um yeah, I was hired I in 2010, see. which makes that math super easy. Yeah, always. <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, it's also, it, it's remarkable because uh, I was talking with this with uh, someone down in, a couple of people down in Kentucky, that it's becoming more common to kind of hop around from distillery to distillery, spend a few years of one, then to another. Um, is there something about Clear Creek and and now kind of Hood River and and the entire ecosystem there that has, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, encouraged you to to stay as opposed to exploring other opportunities. You know, that's a that's a that's a question. It's a question I've asked myself for a long time. <laughs> I don't know. It always just seemed like there was there the like the next big thing was around the bend. I guess. Um, certainly I was very fortunate to have worked with Joseph O'Sullivan over the last, um, almost six years. Uh, so I think previous to his departure, I would have said, oh, I work here because Joseph works here. <laughs> um, you know, when you find that work environment where, where you work with such wonderful, supportive people and, and like, yeah, I might be scrubbing the floors or cleaning out the drains or 
going through any of the other, you know, unsung hero type tasks in any given distillery, like it's not the best day, but when you work with great people, it's still a pretty good day, right? Um, but the brand in itself, you know, it, it's, it's such a beautiful history. And I find myself being really passionate about uh, teaching Americans that brandy isn't a four-letter word and that they shouldn't be scared about it. And I think at some point you just you just know so much about everything that it's like, well, I don't know. I guess I'll stick around. It's a it's a fair question. And <laughs> people Yeah, I know I know a lot of people that have, you know only spend 18 months or so at a different distillery before they move on. I don't know. And to be honest, realistically, the better answer is until very recently, my my family was here. So unfortunately, you know, 2020 affected everybody in in a in a very obvious way. You know, we all had to deal with the the pandemic and all the ways that the pandemic um, changed our lives. But I feel like a lot of people I know, there was some very like specific thorns that would have made 2020 pretty substantial, even there if there hadn't been a pandemic on. Um, and for me, it was uh, my parents having to sell the small family farm. So I was going through 125 years of family history uh, on top of everything else as they had made the decision to sell the property and, and move. So I also, you know, being a distiller in Portland and then Hood River, I was still going home and working for my folks, you know, a couple weekends out of every month as well. So now they're proper retired. In fact, I would bet that they're probably pulling the boat out of the lake in central Oregon right about now. I kept on getting photos uh, from my dad all afternoon, caught another one. <laughs> so they're living the uh, they're living the rich retirement that they absolutely deserve. Um, so you know who who knows why anybody stays or why anybody goes. It's never a simple question. It's never a simple answer. And and there are people who are outside of the kind of family names like you know the the beams and the nose are always going to be well the nose are always going to be a beam. There's a beam in every distillery in Kentucky, uh, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and you know, certain like the Russells will be a turkey and all this. So certain ones will stay, mm -hmm. just because they're it's the family name. It's what you do. But sure. whenever it's not one of those heritage distilleries or not like that, it's always worth asking. As like you said, there are people who move uh, mm -hmm. a year and a half in, and you're either brewing or distilling there. And I mean, you know, it's not coming out in a year and a half. And you're not right. distilling your first day. So, mm -hmm. you know, I always like when I, I, I appreciate it is a better way to put it. I really appreciate when people stay mm -hmm. long enough to produce a product there. Mm -hmm. And I know that could take years, take three years. It could take six, but it shows just like this dedication to the product and to the mm -hmm. process that is uh, fairly unique. I think to whiskey, just because you can't hyper age it. And right. don't get me started on Cleveland stuff. Like, don't come at me for it, but you can't nope. get around the nope. aging stuff. Bro, I'm old school as hell. Like, I, you can't, you can't, yeah. there's no tricks. There's no magic. There's just time and a barrel. That's exactly. it. So, so uh, jumping back to McCarthy's now. So mm -hmm. Clear Creek's been around for then 13 years when McCarthy's first comes out. I think I have that math right. Yep. Uh, in ninety eight. Yeah. Oh wait, yes. sorry. Yeah. 
it depends on where, what I, maybe I, I misspoke. I didn't, I didn't know where your starting point is yet. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. McCarthy's McCarthy's uh, first uh, released in 98. Yes. Right. Uh, so, so thir- yeah, it's 13 years after um, it was six, was it six years from the start? Six, like six year age statement from. Uh, oh from no, start? three, three, three. Okay. Mm-hmm. So figure then it was distilled 95 ish. Yep. Uh, so started doing that 10 years after so for the first 10 years uh, i was really focused just on the on the fruit brandies before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um do you know what kind of i know you said that that steve loves uh pete especially the isla pete and the single malt and he was drinking plenty of single malts but do you have to know like what that moment was that he was like you know what screw it i'm just gonna i'm gonna do it now like this is why i'm gonna I mean, that yeah. was the the story of him being in Ireland with his wife for that trip. That really, oh, that was is, a tr- okay. That, that that really was yeah. the the where he you know de- made that decision to come back and start making an Oregon single malt was was that trip to Ireland. Ironic that it wasn't a trip to Scotland, but no, I know. So he was, you know, he was very fortunate in that he had a friend that had a cabin in Ireland, and we, you know, I always joke like, oh yeah, I mean, then they were, um, they were avid mountaineers you know steve actually made an attempt in his early life to climb mount everest and that story is readily searchable online he, uh, it was published in sports illustrated at the time uh, at the time and it gets rerun in the oregonian uh on the anniversary of the the climb and the article coming out every you know five or ten years or so um it's a really great read but they were avid hikers and men mountaineers uh and so they realistically probably did intend on doing quite a bit of hiking while they were in, I- in ireland uh, but i always laugh that because they they what happened was they got rained out and it's like, well, yeah, of course they did. It's Ireland. It's <laughs> you Ireland, get like, yeah. like 90 inches of rain annually or some sort, some odd number. Like it just rains yeah. all the time. So yeah, instead of going out and all their adventures and all their, all doing all their hikes, um, the friends whose cabin they were staying in happened to be an avid single malt collector. And so, well, we're not going to go hiking. I guess we'll have to drink whiskey. So he had kind of a really interesting maybe not once in a lifetime experience, but kind of once in a lifetime experience to sit through and taste through somebody else's single malt collection and decide what he liked and what he didn't like. And you say he clearly liked Isla. That was the thing they came away Mm -hmm. from was Isla was the one that I liked. And so jumping back to the story of the yeah, ideation of okay, we want to create the single malt. As you said, you wanted to, or he wanted to, try to use the Oregon barley, the Oregon peat, the all the local thing, and you know, for obvious reasons, was told no because I agree. Once you get peat in something, you can't get it out. I don't care yep. what you do to that; you can't get it out. Nope. Uh, and so, for now, and well, for its history, the malt's been uh, malted and peated in. Uh, in and around Port Ellen and then sent back to you guys to be mashed and fermented and everything that comes after that uh, with now granted there's a big difference now between 95 to 98 and today if has there been any uh, reach out to malt houses and such nearby to try to do that now to see like just not as a replacement but as an addition to the line to see uh, what would happen if we used Oregon. I, 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 we get this 
question quite a bit. And um, the best answer that I can give you is we would love and certainly hope that someday we can see his final vision through on uh, McCarthy's that is uh, made from Pacific Northwest peat and Pacific Northwest barley. Um, there are always plans to see that through. And that's about as much as I can tell you on that front. Fair enough. And uh, without spoiling anything, because I, I genuinely don't know, I'm not hiding something from, from you if you're listening, but um, you might have to uh, create your own malting floor <laughs> in order to make it happen. Uh, well, I, I, I greatly look forward to the day where uh, we have our own malting floor and then and then maybe also our own. So we actually work. It's it's actually really important to note. We work with brewery partners to make our wash. It's it's kind of it, it's not a stalwart tradition, but it certainly exists as a rich vein of heritage throughout a lot of American single malt producers. And like mm -hmm. I said earlier, when we were talking about it doesn't really matter that McCarthy's was the first because a lot of people had the idea probably independent of McCarthy's hitting the shelves here in Oregon. Um, because there was craft breweries all over and single malt already existed and had a long rich history in Scotland and, and, and elsewhere as well. But a lot of brands that are now big established American single malt brands they all started with brewery partners because it's it's really hard to buy it's really expensive to, to be a brewery let alone being a distillery where you have all of that extra equipment plus you don't even have a product that you can get on the market for years so being able to not have not have all that grain handling equipment and work with brewery partners while you lay down your mash it's kind of a really important part of the history of how american single malt has really sprung up and grown over the years so we still have brewery partners. We haven't moved away from that. Clear Creek is largely essentially a winery that has that has stills. We have all the equipment we would need to be a winery. In fact, technically, we're going to be a winery tomorrow because I've got uh, bins full of Muscat grapes to, to crush here on the floor uh, for our Muscat grappa tomorrow. So it's really important that we highlight our amazing brewing partners, which our current brewing partner and all the liquid that's uh, likely on the market and all the liquid that's going to be coming out for a while uh, is Double Mountain Brewery here in Hood River. And they do an exceptional job at, at brewing all of the wash for us. Now, are you uh, going full Scottish style with the clear wort and then distilling off grain? It is off grain, but uh, uh, yeah, it's off grain. Yeah, so it's a it's it's a great it's grains out it's properly properly laudered fermented and then racked off the yeast, and then brought up to the distillery. Um, it's a it's like a five mile trip from the brewery to the distillery. It's pretty short, just definitely too long to ask the city of Hood River to let us do a a pipe from Double Mountain up the hill to the distillery. Uh, we're very thankful that there happens to be a, a tanker, a, a, a food safe tank truck company also in Hood River. So they love it because it's a pretty easy haul for them to bring up 5,000 gallons of wash at a time. Um, and then we we distill it and then age it all in 100% Oregon oak casks here at the distillery. Nice. And the probably most famous part of the Oregon oak, mm -hmm. and by Oregon oak, you mean the Gariana? Yep, Gariana Oak. Okay. Uh, also called Gary Oak and or, or just Oregon Oak. So I just want to make sure because sometimes those can go interchangeably and sometimes, you know, got to make sure it's I the mean, same. It's, 
It's really more fair to be calling it Garyon Oak because uh, that particular type of oak doesn't just grow in Oregon. That's its common name, but it actually grows all the way up through northern from Northern California all the way up through British Columbia. So it's got a bigger footprint than our man-made boundaries of this is Oregon. Uh, sure. So Garyon Oak, totally more fair, uh, more fair descriptor. <laughs> fair enough. So uh, you know, Gary Oak, uh, Garyon Oak. I'm going to use Gary and Gary on it because it's just going to go back and forth in my head. Yep. Uh, it's uh, as far as I understand it, it's, it's, it's not like white Oak where you can just harvest it. It has to, it's semi-protected and there are limits mm-hmm. on how you can use it. So how do the restrictions on Gariana Oak affect your production capacity? So far. <laughs> So far, none at all. Uh, we are growing McCarthy's where we can, when we can, how we can, but uh, it is not quite the footprint where we need to be start or where we need to start legislating for um, different kinds of oaks or finding new new amounts of Oregon oak. Um, we work with a really wonderful man named Rick DeFerrari, who is the owner and proprietor of Oregon Barrel Works in McMinnville. We've been partnered with him since day one with McCarthy's. He makes all kinds of wine casks as well as our Oregon oak casks for aging whiskey. And I haven't heard from Rick that there's an issue with getting us all the Oregon barrels we could ever hope to, to, to order from him uh, at the moment. So I'm going to assume that McCarthy's is good for a long stretch still. The Let's think about this. So you might like this one just because it's uh, a little more in the wine industry. But the so the wine industry worldwide, let's say, but especially in, in France mm-hmm. has long touted the effects of you know, different wood types, particularly from if you get it from this French forest as opposed to the other French forest and this copse of trees versus another one, you're going to get huge differences in the wood and thus huge differences in the wine. Um, I don't get the sense so far that um, American consumers care quite that much, especially with the spirits industry mm-hmm. quite that much. You know, there's always that 1% of us who care deeply about that and like want to know mm-hmm. where the wood came from and what tree it came down from. But um, overall, it's it's a it's a smaller percentage of us, let's say. So I'm curious when when the decision was made from the very beginning to use Gariana oak as the oak that you were gonna age all McCarthy's in, mm-hmm. not just a special release. Um to put it kind of bluntly, uh did the first people who got to try this really care that it was Gariana Gariana, or was it more like, okay, that's another oak and you know. I think that really goes into, again, um, you know, Steve made things because he liked them. Um, you know, he, he, he wanted that. I think he was looking for that tie in for why call it Oregon single malt, especially if we're needing to import that pea malted barley from Scotland. So what's our tie in going to be other than it's made in Oregon? Well, why don't we try Oregon Oak and see if that's a thing. And, you know, it being a heavy peated malt, it being a heavy spirit, being distilled in these um, hybrid pot stills and, and with just a single pass, it is already a very big and bold whiskey. And Oregon oak 
is a very big and bold oak. It has a, it has a lot to give in any single cask. And what we find in the finished product is this really beautiful, uh, and we'll talk about it, you know, when we talk about the trails in bourbon, uh, because these are notes that, that cross over from McCarthy's into the trails end because they're both well, one is aged in, the other is finished in that organ oak, but it has these beautiful rich notes of Madagascar vanilla and burnt orange peel. So it's a it's it's a it's an entirely different beast when you when you're talking about just in generalities what any in, individual organ oak cask is going to give the spirit. And with McCarthy's, it could they could be fighting each other, and you could take a smell or or, or take a sip of the glass and and taste that feud of who's going to be best today and who's going to win out as being the superior flavor and aroma in this in this beautiful dram but instead of fighting each other they really work together to make this really balanced and cohesive drink and so i i really think that it's you know that it was the tie-in with oregon it was something different it was a big bold whiskey and it can handle a big bold oak and at the end of the day we were making something that steve liked and then it's awesome that a whole bunch of other people happen to think that it's pretty dope too. You know, finishing up the round on McCarthy's, uh, of course I got to taste the six-year-old, uh, which I quite liked. I mean, if you, if you like PT whiskeys, if you like Isla, you're going to love it. Uh, and certainly I did. I didn't think it was, it was definitely not too Isla for me, which is a good kind of medium ground. I liked it. Uh, I but actually, the, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. you might think this is really interesting when you talk about um, people that like peated whiskeys and, and people that are maybe new to it or scared of the word peat. Uh, sure. I was at a tasting over this weekend and I had introduced it as an American single malt. And then I, and then subsequently said it's made from peat malted barley that we import from Scotland. And as soon as I said the peat word that like eyes would get really big and they try to run away. And I was like, no, 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 I, I, I need to preface this. You might have had some peated whiskeys and maybe you're running away from them because they were pretty, a descriptor you would use is barnyardy. And maybe that isn't the thing that you're looking for. And so I was like, the McCarthy, the peat uh, quality of McCarthy's is a little bit more like forest loam uh, in an old growth forest. Like you're, you're picking up a big kind of like scoop full of all of these, I mean, peat is all of these dead mosses and stuff breaking down, but it, bringing it a little bit more into an old growth forest and away from maybe a barnyard. And then I found myself uh, saying like, imagine if you were on a camping trip in Fangorn forest and then eyes were getting really big and lighting up, but because they couldn't wait to try it and not because they were scared of the word Pete. So like McCarthy's is a little bit like a camping trip in Fangorn forest. <laughs> I definitely got that. It was, uh, it, it, it had more of an earthy tone to it. I would call like kind of leafy and walking mm -hmm. through the fall and things have just started to turn for the winter. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, again, I, I quite liked it. I'm, I, I'm kind of at that stage where Laforgue is too much for me. Pete wise Laga is a little bit too much. I fall more into the Kalila kind mm -hmm. of camp for, mm -hmm. for Isla styles. And then for Highland is a whole other, whole other ball of wax. But, um, so anyway, so, you have the six-year-old, but uh, you mentioned that you're also looking at different uh, finishes. And I have to ask about the, the rumors of a 12-year-old as well. 
So I'll throw that over to you. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's start with the finishes first. Uh, we originally were just a three-year-old whiskey, and after after many years of campaigning, and and sending a one single barrel as our Voyager probe out into the great beyond of space and time to see what McCarthy's could taste like as as older versions, we were able to see the six-year uh, come to market. I believe the end of 2021. And then at the end of 22, our first sherry cask finish, which was the Pedro Jimenez sherry cask finish, um, which in, in my opinion and my predecessor Joseph's opinion is the best thing that we've ever made. Uh, we've, we've had a subsequent release. It's actually Garrett Trotter's uh, blend. He did all the work on pulling the specific barrels that went together to, to go into those Oloroso sherry casks. And uh, we released those four barrels this June. But the PX, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, will always sit in a, in a very special liquor, liquor shelf in the corner of my heart um, as, as, as something that I take a great amount of pride in. Um, the Oloroso is beautiful. I, I'd say that it's, it's even more, it's, it's, it plays even more into that camping trip in Fangorn Forest. Uh, but instead of being maybe in the, in, the, in the middle of the forest, you're close to the crispy edges where there's kind of a few piles of, of dried fall leaves kind of scraped up against the, the ed edges and outskirts of the forest. Uh, it's, really, it's really gorgeous. Garrett did a really great job. Um, there were always, you know, there's always a few experiments, a few things that a few secret barrels of McCarthy's that's tucked around. Hopefully nobody in the sales and marketing team listens to the, well, for you, they should, I hope they do listen to your podcast, but maybe they'll skip this one and they won't find out that I've always got an experiment or two up my sleeve, uh, when it comes to McCarthy's, um, and then, you know, when we talk about how we got the six year, we still have that one barrel kind of sailing off into the sunset. And so it is my greatest hope uh, that we eventually get to see what McCarthy's tastes like at 12 years. So, yes, there is there is. I can confirm that rumor. I would like to see a 12 year old McCarthy's. Uh, I can't tell you how long it will be before that barrel gives us a sneak peek on what that will look and taste like. Um, but it is sooner rather than later. Well, I will be looking forward to it for sure. Because just got it. I want to see the progression. I had the, th I tried the three year old. I tried the six. I want to. Yeah. Want right. Title. I mean, why not just yeah. double the age every time? I don't imagine that we're going to do it, a, a, do it another time and have a 24 year old McCarthy's. I think, you know, certainly there is a, a rule of diminishing returns when you talk about extra super old whiskeys. Um, for, for sure. But yeah. I think. 12 feels like it's a, it's going to be a really nice note to end on. It's a nice homage to the kind of scotch inspiration of it, where so many of the brands have the 12 year old single malt as their mm -hmm. core mm -hmm. expression. So mm -hmm. it's a nice round number. It works. Yeah, everybody likes 12. Well. We yeah. can do a whole kinds of things with 12. There's... Yeah. Why not? And so the other product that um, you guys were generous enough to send over to try was uh, two versions of the trails end. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So, which one? Um, I got. So, I got to try the eight-year-old in apple brandy casks, mm -hmm. and the ten-year-old finished in Garyana oak. Awesome. So, the only one that you're missing then is the uh, trails and apple. Then, no, wait, the trails and eight. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yes. Brain fart. <laughs> okay. So there are there are three current expressions of the trails and the the original 
flagship, the one that started it all, uh, that's the Trails N8. It's eight-year-old Kentucky bourbon that we bring here to Oregon and then finish with uh, toasted Oregon oak staves. And then the Trails End Apple Brandy finish is also an eight-year-old Kentucky bourbon that we bring here from Kentucky and then finish in uh, old delicious apple brandy casks. So I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, we have an apple brandy that's an independent brand. It's a double bourbon barreled apple brandy. So we're finding a way to reuse those bourbon casks as much as possible because, you know, bourbon is done with them after one use, which is kind of a crying shame. So we do everything we can to make sure that those barrels continue to live rich, beautiful lives throughout the Pacific Northwest. And the first thing that we do is move them through our trails and apple brandy line. And then once they've spent a year with full of apple brandy, they go back and finish the trails and apple brandy barrel finish. And then the last one, like you said, the trails end 10 is finished in whole Oregon Oak casks here at the distillery. And Clearly, for between the apple brandy, the Gariano oak, the mix between the two, uh, you know, both, well, both, all three, uh, both that I tried and all three products are paying homage to um, Hood River's history, to Clear Creek's history, to Oregon's distilling history in general. Um, I'm sure you get this question every single time, but then why uh, use Kentucky bourbon as the base? Um. I think just because Kentucky bourbon is super good, right? I mean, when you, when, that's, an when honest, people, that's an honest and fair question. Right? Uh, uh, when people uh, think bourbon, rather, so, they yeah. think Kentucky bourbon. So, yeah. um, you know, we're already, you know, we already have an uphill battle when you're talking about, you know, trying to tell a consumer what your story is, what your brand is, what your ideology is, why they should buy your bottle instead of somebody else's. Um, if you're going to make a really good bottle, you might as well start with the best. And to be fair to a great deal of my friends that make bourbon outside of Kentucky, there are great bourbons outside of Kentucky, but there is a lot of um, brand recognition for anything that comes out of Kentucky. Sure. And I think something I was thinking about while crafting that question too, is that if your focus on the series, and I'm, this is what I'm interpreting the focus on the series to be, is to show the Oregon oak, the Oregon apple brandy, these mm -hmm. facets that you want something as a base that's going to be, of course, good. You want a good mm -hmm. base, but something that's not going to be so unfamiliar as to detract from what you're right. trying to show. And yeah, from a Kentucky, science perspective, you want right. to always isolate variables when you can. Exactly. And so yeah. our, we, we isolated the variable of bourbon being, let's start with a really great Kentucky bourbon and then explore what that bourbon could taste like, like when we're mining the rich culinary and cultural heritage of the Pacific Northwest and what that could offer up to what is already a beautiful bourbon. This is kind of looking at the, the trails in from the opposite side of the question. It's still a why question because I love the why questions, but mm -hmm. um, you and, and Joseph were both on uh, single malt matters uh, talking about this and you were focused on, you said you're focused on quality over quantity, which has been, I think, one of the great themes here. It's not producing so, so much. It's about producing good product. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, I would say, how did the Trails End brand come around as part of the, you know, as part of the uh, Clear Creek Hood River family? Like, why, why was it added? 
to the brand. So the reason we have Trails End in the first place was, um, you know, Hood River Distillers, uh, Ron Dodge, in spe uh, specifically the uh, former president. Now he's the head of the board of directors. Uh, one of the you know, family owners of Hood River Distillers, he had a keen eye for looking out at market trends. It's it, him and his team in the 90s are the reason that Pendleton Whiskey even came to be. He was noticing the premiumization of the market and was looking at our value brand or Hood River Distillers value line uh, brand of, of offerings at the time and was like, this is great. We're excited to have these and support these, but I am feeling a change in the winds and that, that people are going to be starting to trade up and looking for that, for that better, more tastier thing, something with a little bit more story, something with a little bit more character. And that was really how Pendleton whiskey sprouted out of Hood River Distillers. And so as a part of that continuing eye for premiumization and trends, Ron started buying up bourbon because he saw the bourbon craze coming, I think, before, uh, certainly before the consumers really understood that there was a bourbon craze happening. And so he just kind of slowly started buying up uh, these lots of bourbon down in Kentucky. And they purchased Clear Creek Distillery as, a, as an ongoing trend to continue adding to their premium portfolio. And then they're like, okay, well, now we've, we've bought Clear Creek and we've got the, the staff of spirits wizards. Um, hey, we, we still have this really cool bourbon that we bought and we're still really not sure what we're going to do with it. Maybe the, maybe the spirits nerds at Clear Creek will know how to, how to do something with it. And they came to us fairly early on after the purchase and we're like, hey, we, um, it's kind of like a kid divesting its pockets when mom's like, what's in your pockets? They're like, hey, so we happen to like in this back pocket here have this like really beautiful Kentucky bourbon, but we're really not sure what what we want to do with it. What do you think we should do with it? And Clear Creek being the, um, you know, the the house that Oregon Oak built, we're like, well, let's start off with Oregon Oak and see how that does. And we got the the staves and we did some trial runs and we're like, wow, that's really gorgeous. It was already a, a really fabulous, uh, solid eight-year bourbon. And then to add, like I said before, those Madagascar vanilla notes, that uh, bitter twist of bitter orange, almost, you know, hints of a Manhattan without having a, a Manhattan made for you, right? With that addition of the Oregon Oak. Um and everybody, everybody loved it. And then um, the, the, when you talk about how little I like to say that um, McCarthy's is the first American single malt, I really need to explain to you how how much I don't want to say this next part because I I like I I'm just humble to a point of self-deprecation on a on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. I was like, well, it's at the time I was like, well, it's okay, it's Kentucky bourbon, and we're finishing it in Oregon. Oh, why don't we call it Trails End? Because like the Oregon Trail and stuff wouldn't that that makes sense right and I just kind of whispered it to their general manager at the time just because I was like I don't know if this is a really good idea I think it's maybe a good idea I don't know maybe it's nothing and then I just kind of I said it to him and then almost specifically just ran out of his office because I was so nervous <laughs> I was like I think we should call it trails and ah! <laughs> and then six months later they have this all big all company meeting and they're like well, we went to a bunch of design firms and we talked about all the different kinds of brand names that we could name this project. And um, nobody could do any better than Bartleme. So we're going to call it Trails End. High five. <laughs> and they gave me a gift card and I bought a KitchenAid with it. 
I think um, it's a fun story. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the real story behind, behind Trails End, right? It was just this beautiful, like Ron's, uh, you know, beautiful foresight into, you know, what's going to be popular, what isn't, seeing premiumization on, on the winds of change, seeing, you know, bourbon go through this massive growth spurt and then, you know, coming, coming to the nerds and seeing what, 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 what do you think we can do this? What, what, how can we make this spirit shine and, and, and really prosper? And that's, and that's what happened. And all these years later, you know, we've added the Trails N10, which is stunning. Um, and that's aged in the whole organ oak casks. The Trails N Apple Finish, again, just exploring um, all the facets of what that bourbon has to offer. Um, I like to, when you're talking about the things that we're choosing to do with the Trails End and how we highlight uh, with the finishes what that bourbon already has, I like to talk about spider graphs. So for you, and I'm sure you probably know what they are, but for a listener that doesn't know what a spider graph is, imagine an actual spider web. And then the spokes of that spider web that come out from the center and attached to the walls or whatever the spiders built your web on, each one of those spokes is a flavor or an aroma that could exist within that whiskey. So maybe it's vanilla and, you know, toasty oats and maltiness, sweet corn, you know, all those different, all the things that you might find, you know, dark chocolate, fatty nuts, all the things you might find in a really beautiful bourbon. And then you scale on that spoke one through 10, 10 being, wow, there's a lot of vanilla and then you're all the way out on the outside edge of that spider web. Or I don't taste any vanilla in it. I'm going to put this dot really close to the center. And then you essentially build that connecting part of the web as a representation of the aroma and flavor of that whiskey. And then you have a map of what you're supposedly smelling and tasting, which is dope. The cool thing about exploring what these finishes can do with this bourbon is that you're essentially playing that spider web like a guitar and you're picking on which string and which string you want to highlight the most. And then you're building a beautiful chord of flavor and aroma on top of that. So you already have all these beautiful descriptors. With the apple brandy cask, what we wanted to highlight was all of those really wonderful fruity floral notes that the bourbon already had. And by bolstering that and bringing that threshold up, you know, up out of the spirit where it was buried amongst the total flavor of the bourbon. Now, all of a sudden you're getting all those fruity and floral notes. You get that, that green apple note that was really already there, but with just a tiny little push of that finishing cask. And all of a sudden it's, it's tooting out at you like a trombone solo out of the glass. And so that's really what we're, what we're doing with these finishes. And so, you know, that's another fun fun part about you know the the soon to be released uh porter barrel finish is that's another couple of beautiful strings to pluck on this spider graph of what that bourbon tastes like without these finishes and so we're digging instead of into the highlights and the fruity floral notes now we're digging into some of those more base notes some of the some of the more thrumming kind of notes those dark roasty malt notes some of the sweetness and and of like a you know, charred corn on a late summer day kind of vibe that 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 was already buried within the total taste of, the, of that bourbon, but now is jumping out at you with the addition of that porter barrel finish. Um, so those those are the things that we're trying to explore with our with our you know Pacific Northwest culinary heritage and the things that we can we can add and contribute and share with that bourbon. Fantastic. So. It- 
seems like I was going to ask uh, to close out. I was going to ask, you know, what can we look forward to from a distillery and, and <laughs> all this with, with such a long history and all this, but I think we pretty much covered it. We've got the, the new finish, the Porter finish, eventually a 12 year uh, for the McCarthy's we've got, um, you know, so a lot of, you know, experiments that may or may not um, be known quite yet. Mm-hmm. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. But, I am. I am the keeper of the secret. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I mean, with that, I think there's just a lot to look forward to. And I was excited to finally get to talk to you about, about all these brands, about the distillery, distilleries, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, involved. Yeah, we didn't even and, touch on the fact that we have, we actually have a sister distillery. So Hood River Distillers has, uh, owns two distilleries, uh, Clear Creek Distillery being one of them. The other one is Captive Spirits up in Seattle. They make big gin. And uh, I, I, in, in our in our solar system explanation, uh, I did Neptune for Alex Myers, the head distiller up there, because Neptune is also a super dope planet. Um, but he has he makes a really beautiful London Dry, and then uh, he has a bourbon barrel expression of that London Dry, as well as a peat barrel expression of that. Which is if you if, you know we're talking about McCarthy's and we're talking about people that love a peated whiskey, wait till you try a peated London Dry gin. I'm a big gin guy too. I love gins. So, and especially barrel aged ones. So I will be looking them up for sure. But with that, I think, I think I've got, you made it through the questions. You made it through the gauntlet. (laughs) You made it through. So with that, um, hang on with me for just a sec after we finish recording. Want to thank again, Caitlin for coming on to talk about Clear Creek, Hood River, McCarthy's trails and uh, these are all uh, products that are available. Um, they ship to many states at this point. I don't know have the exact number in front of me, but I think it's it, like forty-two states in eleven countries. Something like that. Yeah. So you know, it's it's um, you should be able to find it, or you know, get some friends in those other forty-two states to find to order for you. Uh, but I definitely encourage it. It's really great stuff uh, and. I certainly enjoyed tasting it. And my friends who I got to share it with also enjoyed it. So take that for what you will. But thank you again, Caitlin, for coming on uh, and talking thank you. about this. Thank, been... you. Um, thank you so much, David, for, for having me. It was a, a real pleasure. I, 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 it's been a really busy season here at Clear Creek, a really busy summer. And uh, certainly looking forward to recording this podcast with you has, has absolutely been a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And I just really want to appreciate you I, to tell you how much I appreciate you and your time. I appreciate that as well. Thank you. Uh, So this has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. I'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening. And by now, just as as a teaser, some of those single barrels we've been teasing are going to be available. Listen to the end roll for more info. Talk to you soon. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice. And let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderingring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume Under the Influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, 
So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.